This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. All right, I'm on the line with Michael Lauk in St. Louis, Missouri. How are you, Michael? I'm great. How are you? Good. You are here today to talk about collecting magic and the history of magic, magicians and all that, which I think is a fascinating topic. And how did you get started in your collecting and your knowledge? And before I go too far, you actually blog and do work on vintage and historical uh, magic. You can talk a little bit about that as well. Sure. Uh, first of all, let me say thanks for having me on, Martin. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, my name is Michael Lauk, and I do write for a magic website called itrix.com. It's I-T-R-I-C-K-S dot com. And we are a, uh, unlike most websites, which are for magicians specifically, we are for magicians and fans of magic. We uh, post on the history of magic, but also what's going on right now all over the world in magic. I mean, just today, um, as we're recording, I have posts going on about a new Vietnamese movie co-starring an Australian magician, uh, a story out of England about a, one of their big magicians over there, Darren Brown, who's getting ready to do a special where he has trained retirees to be art thieves using magic and then got connected to a real life art heist that occurred this past week. And, um, you know, of course, stories from America, too. What do you mean? Talk about that. How how did it get connected to a real art heist? Well, they've been promoting this special. Um, Darren Brown is is a... uh, is a magician and a hypnotist, and he he is. Uh, if you've seen some of the shows on um, in America, such as Brain Games and and things of that nature, where they kind of connect magic with the way your your mind perceives things, Darren Brown uh, kind of blazed that trail in television over in England. And his next special, he's he's taking this group of retirees, and they're going to steal uh, art, evidently from a museum. That's what. They've been promoting, and that's what's been going on. Well, this week in London, there was a actual art heist, um, and the name of the artist has just fallen right out of my head. He's one of the big uh, British young artists. It'll come to me. But uh, there was an art heist. Two of his, his pieces were taken, and Darren Brown's publicist then tweeted, you know, the name of the artist, at Darren Brown, at the name of the special, which is the great art heist. And so then everybody was like, wait a minute, is this even a real art theft? Is this promotion for the show? And and it was indeed a real art theft and actually had nothing to do with the show. Oh, just good timing. Well, it depends, you know, terrible timing for the gallery. Right, exactly. Art heists to me are always fascinating. I had a FBI agent on, if the listener wants to go back, who hasn't heard it. Um, he was undercover for 20 years. Uh, for the FBI, and uh, it was all about art heists. That's one of my favorite podcasts. It's just fascinating. Art thieves are nothing like you think they are. They're not like Pierce Brosnan or anyone like that. They're usually people just desperate for money, and a lot of times it's taken by force, so it's not not the big mystique. No, um, I'm sorry if you can hear my dogs barking in the background. Um, something has set them off. But uh, an, you art, know, an art thief? Possibly. <laughs> Um, magicians and uh, big-time theft are, are kind of a recurring theme in books and movies, and, and now it's coming back again in, in movies. And I think, you know, the, the big heist is thrilling anyway, but, but the magician is always a good character to, to explain someone who can pick locks and 
deceive guards and fool people and sneak things out right in front of their eyes. So uh, it's it's kind of a natural combination. And uh, I know there's a Indian movie called Doom Three that's coming out next week. That is that's what it's in it too. We just had a huge hit. Um, not so much in America, but worldwide with a film called, you know, Now You See Me, that, that I'm sure a lot of your listeners have seen. That, that's oh, about yes, the, I've watched that, yeah. yeah. And there's a sequel to that going to be now, made now. So it, it, it is something that kind of goes hand in hand for some reason. Although I, I've never met any magician who has actually stolen any um, terrible, you know, valuable computer secrets, art, uh, giant you know, ridiculously large gemstones or anything like that. Not that you know of. Hey, do you have any milk bones, by the way? I don't know. I, I don't know what's going on with them. Let me go uh, yeah. see what's happening. Yeah, take, take a quick break. Sure. So where were we? what were we talking about? Talking about art heist, but I think we we're kind of done with that. Yeah. So. yeah. so what in your mind is, uh, I know everyone talks about Houdini, and as far as things selling at auction... Houdini's right up there in the very top. But uh, who are some of your favorite magicians that maybe you just don't hear of in back in the day? Personally, um, as a collector who also is a magician, some of my heroes are uh, a little bit more recent and they are um, known today to magicians primarily for their uh, writings. So there is a man named J.B. Bobo. And his, that's his real name, J.B. Bobo, <laughs> uh-huh. um, who just passed away actually in the 90s. And he wrote a couple of the just classic, almost textbooks on coin magic. And uh, he was a big school performer uh, for 50 years until over 50 years, actually, from the late 30s in, into the 90s. He and his wife uh, traveled the country doing school shows, particularly uh, – within a 200, 250-mile radius of Texarkana, Texas, which is where he was from. And um, I think they did something like 15,000 school shows. Wow. So so they were major – I mean, they were legendary in their area because every kid saw them. You know, literally generations of families saw the Bobo show, you know, over the years. And, and, and um, because he was more recent and he did school shows, he has uh, – a lot of great smaller advertising posters, and I've been—that's something I've been collecting uh, recently—is is the smaller kind of '40s, '50s, '60s um, handbill or lobby card size uh, advertising posters. Another uh, person with a similar story is a black magician named Fatake Sanders, who was a who, who traveled around and did fundraisers for um, predominantly black schools throughout the South at the same time. And I've been, I've been, he also has a lot of advertising material. I've been collecting that as well. Is that hard to come by? <laughs> um, it tends to come in, in spurts. It's the kind of thing where you won't see any, and then someone will discover that box of unused posters. Right. You know, and, and go, oh, you know, here's 100 posters that were rolled up and put away. Yeah, that and, tends to happen in this business anyway. Definitely. And so um, you just kind of have to be ready and and jump on it. And then now, thanks to eBay um, and and a few other sites like that, when there are the one or two loose posters that come up, it's it's a lot easier to find them as opposed to 
you know, back even just 15, 20 years ago when three months later, you know, you would hear about an auction or see the auction catalog and see that of the, you know, 200 items, there were two magic posters you would have been interested in had you known, you know, among all the oil cans and and advertisements for other things. Yes, I know that um, where I work in the auction business, James Julia, you know, auctions, a lot of times in their advertising auctions, advertising toys and dolls, they have two a year. They'll have magic, you know, uh, posters is the big one, I know. They'll have uh, uh, magic in that sometimes. And again, it's always collectible. Are you aware of what the high record is for, like, say, a Houdini poster? Um, I believe it's right at $50,000 for a poster of his very famous water torture illusion. And I believe that was a David Copperfield purchase. And I believe second is another poster from Houdini, also of the water torture from a different year and a different tour that was right at like $44,000, by purchased by a magician named Norm, Norm Nielsen. Now, David Copperfield is a big collector. Do you know anything about his collection? David Copperfield's collection is housed in something that is literally referred to as the secret warehouse. And uh, it is every now and then you will see in interviews, he will take somebody on a tour. Um, the uh, I believe it was Forbes or maybe Wall Street Journal recently had an interview with him and, and he took him on a bit of a tour. And he has the largest magic collection in the world, bar none. And uh, yeah, he, he literally millions and millions of dollars of of magic and and other th- you know related things too ventriloquist dummies and and, and other items uh, such as that um you know he's he's they're, they're saying within a few years david copperfield will actually be a billionaire and part of that is because of his real estate and part of it is because of his amazing collection wow Wow. So he's probably like an avid collector, but he has people collecting for him. A lot of times people like, you know, Oprah or uh, Barbara Streisand or something like that. You know, they may be the ultimate buyers, but you never know it. You know, they have all these people out there buying for them. Well, you know, I I think that's that's probably partially the case. Um, He he definitely has a team of people anyway that that, that work with him. But I think uh, he's also so big in the field that, that there's almost the reverse. There are some things that never go to auction because you just, if you realize what you have, you, you immediately just say, forget auction. I'm just going to call Copperfield and see what he'll offer me. That's exactly right. And that's just like Bill Gates bought the most expensive Winslow Homer painting ever and uh, went higher than it would have ever gone at auction because, you know, it, it's a one of the top paintings by Homer and, you know, he just jumped right on it. Um, someone contacted him and that's, that's the way that goes. On the one hand, it, it, as a collector, it seems like perhaps that's unfair. Uh, I, I mean, I tell myself that it's, it's not as if we're playing in the same league, so it really doesn't affect me. Um, but on the other hand, the way I look at it is, is, you know, someone is getting it who will do what is, needs to be done to take care of it, and we'll appreciate mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. That's the thing about anything that goes to auction. You know, like I had, I just had a recent conversation with a woman that has some very historical Massachusetts items, um, you know, p- documents. And when I say historical, I mean 
really amazing. And her number one reason for not selling it at this time right now is that she's concerned that it's going to go out of state. And you absolutely have no control with once that hammer goes down at an auction or once something is sold in any type of way, you have absolutely no control about its future. As far as people collecting magic items, um, we, you and I had talked before, and it's really not props. And by the way, you did a blog post. I'm going to link to this podcast a while back. Do you remember what that was about? It was several months ago. Uh, it was it was about um, the alternatives to collecting magic posters because they tend to be so expensive. And uh, I believe I focused mainly on on the ephemera of the magic field. Right. Okay. And what was the question I asked you before that? Well, what what do people collect items wise? Oh yeah, that, that aren't props. And and yeah, um, a lot of people do assume that props would be a major. Um, collectible for magic and they are if you're somebody like copperfield who has a secret warehouse but i mean practically when when you think of the stage illusions even the things you've seen on tv i mean a, a box large enough to you know produce assistance out of or put assistance in and cut them in half is large enough to hold a human being at least so you're talking about not to be morbid but but coffin or casket size objects mm-hmm. and that's not the kind of thing that you can easily display um <laughs> yep. so you know they fill up quickly so uh props for that reason don't tend to be the larger props don't tend to be as sought after by a lot of people now some of the smaller props what um a hundred or so years ago would have been quote-unquote parlor magic um are, are the smaller stage props those those are nice collectibles um they're colorful uh, when you get back far enough, they're handmade. Um, they're they're meant to be attractive, so they make great designer pieces. And I'm actually starting to see things pop up more and more in the background of office shots and movies and in interviews that I can look at and go, "Wow, that really looks like a you know 1930s you know Mac Magic what you know this or that magic box." kind of thing and 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 they are starting to show up because they have a they definitely have a a visual appeal to them right now one of the things i've seen out in the road and out and about in antique shops now and then is a trunk or suitcase you know that is stenciled with a magician's name on it is that something that's really sought after um here and there if it's a magician that you're definitely going to recognize if it says Harry Blackstone, if it says Harry Houdini, Harry Keller, all those Harrys, um, you know, maybe because it's it was a part of their show. Otherwise, uh, what you have to realize is a hundred, not even a hundred years ago, um, really up until about 50 years ago, magic was a much larger form of entertainment than it is today. When you get to the vaudeville years, there were thousands and thousands of touring magicians. Um, Is that right? Really? Oh, oh, really? Definitely. I mean, there really were, uh, and a lot of performers flipped back and forth. And in you know, one week they're a comedian, and the next week because they don't have enough, the money to go to the next town, they stay there, and now they're a dancer. And then the next week they're a magician. Wow. <laughs> But um, there really, there really were just a huge amount of magicians at, at one point, and 
they had to move their equipment and something. And when you get to the larger stage shows, they would have sometimes rail cars full of equipment. Three, four, five, six really? rail cars. So All, a ev- trunk would not be rare, basically. No, I mean somebody like somebody like a Blackstone or a Thurston or one of the big, you know, performers who was moving around could have dozens and dozens of trunks in their show, many of which would then change each year as you moved featured effects in and out. So in their entire collection, because they might have three or four or five different tours that they could switch in and out, plus things that they never quite used or were working on, they could have hundreds of trunks. Wow. Uh, one other thing I was thinking of is it's predominantly a male-oriented profession. Are there any famous female performers that you can talk about in the well, past? It, it, it's funny that you mentioned that. Um, Women in Magic is kind of one of my pet subjects. Uh, we, we, I did a podcast over on iTrix about it not too long ago talking to uh, the state of Women in Magic and talked to several of today's professionals. Um, but women have been involved in magic for for uh, pretty much as long as there's been magic. I mean, f- first of all, assistants, they don't get the top billing often, but they're very important, especially to the large stage shows. So mm-hmm. uh, they're often every bit uh, as skilled of a performer, honestly, even more so a lot of times than the male magician who is, who is, is the headliner. So so putting that aside, though, there are several big-name female magicians over the years. Uh, today we have Jade and Ariana Black, who, who plays in Vegas, and uh, people like that. But if you go back, oh, to the late 19th century, um, Herman was the big magician in Europe and, and famous in America. And when he passed away, his wife took over the act. Is that continued- right? Wow. Yes, and continued to tour for many years. Um, there was Ionia, the I believe she called herself the Princess of Illusion. It might have been the Princess of Enchantment. Um, back around the turn of the century, um, fast forwarding a little bit, you had Del O'Dell was a very popular magi- woman magician um, in the 30s, 40s, 50s. I mean, to the point where songs were written about her. Um, Jerry Larson, whose family started Genie, one of the big magic magazines. She had uh, one of the first children's television shows in California, The Magic Lady. Uh, Celeste West was a, or excuse me, Celeste Evans uh, was a big magician um, for many years. She's still around. She she's written a great book about her experiences as a female magician in the fifties and sixties, and uh, she toured around the world with the UN promoting goodwill to different countries and and um i believe that book is called i can still see me uh but yeah there there are so many women magicians out there um that we don't really realize and some of their their effects are very very collectible i was Uh, wondering about that part of it too yeah i mean um like some of them are just really strange things like delo del sheet music which Uh (laughs) talked about you know these, these songs that were written about her um there are also items such as giveaway or, or throwaway cards. Uh, 
that were basically playing cards that would feature a magician's picture and they would either use them for their for their tricks and give them to volunteers or uh, actually throw them into the audience. And when I say throw them, I don't mean like toss them out like a like a guitarist throws his guitar pick. I mean point to people in the theater and whip a card directly to them. It's it's a pretty neat skill. Wow. Now I I have a, a thought here. You know, you think of like Houdini and you know the the other big names that you mentioned. What are the names today that you think will be collected in the future? Copperfield and uh, Chris Angel, people like that? Um, um, well, th- the world has changed so much. Uh, right now, you can be a huge magician, uh, and you do it through television, and that creates much less physical... I, I guess evidence of your shows, right? Than, no posters or no, exactly. Um, now David Copperfield, he he's done many arena tours, uh, so there there are posters for him and um, some of the other magicians, Chris Angel and David Blaine. They actually have posters created to kind of keep the tradition alive. There, there's definitely less of a presence, and that makes things a little harder to figure because. Uh, you can take a, a magician like Lance Burton, who retired a few years ago, but but he had a huge Vegas magic show for a long time, and he had a th- they actually built a theater especially for Lance Burton, the Lance Burton Theater. So you're not going to find you, you know all these handbills and advertising, and, and that definitely does uh, slant the answer. But I'd have to say Siegfried and Roy. Our icons, um, Doug Henning, who uh, mm-hmm. did shows on Broadway. So not only are there posters, but there are playbills for his right. Doug Henning's The Magic Show, and that's one um, of the collectibles in the trade. Very much so, and um, a, a lot of people don't realize how many magic shows played Broadway uh, at the at the end of the broad at the end of the uh, vaudeville era into like World War II. Um, Orson Welles produced a magic show on Broadway. There, I mean, there were, there were several. So there are the, those magic playbills are kind of a great item that slips between the cracks and a, and a good place to start collecting. A lot of times you can pick up major performers like a, a Blackstone or a Henning for $20, $30. Now, a lot of times magic shows were very dangerous. I think of like Houdini locking himself, you know, up with chains and being submerged, submerged underwater and things like that. Were there other, ever were there ever people that actually died on stage during an act? Um, there are people who die on stage, even you know, relatively recently. But but sure, uh, probably the most famous was a magician named um, Billy Robinson or William Robinson, and he was for years an assistant to more famous magicians and uh as a as a lead assistant that meant he also took care of and repaired illusions and and props so uh one day he took all the knowledge he had gathered working for other people made his own stuff and started his own show um but because he had kind of well for a lot of reasons he decided not to be Billy Robinson he decided to be a Chinese magician named uh, 
Chungling Su, who eventually uh, died on stage doing a bullet catch. A bullet catch. Uh, can you explain what a bullet catch? First of all, is it a real bullet out of a gun being shot? Well, I mean, that's the certainly the idea is people <laughs> shoot at you and you catch the bullet. Um, Pin and Teller do a bullet catch to this day. And, and this is really, really done. Well, you know, people will say it's fake. It's, but Billy Robinson got shot on stage and died. So he didn't uh, didn't quite catch it. He didn't quite catch it, and it was an accident. Um, it was a it was a, a buildup of uh, unused gunpowder because they didn't clean their guns very well over the years. Um, actually made a secondary explosion and it was it's kind of similar in a lot of ways to uh Brandon Lee being sh- shot with a blank on on set. Right. It, yeah. it was a similar situation and that's that's what what killed Robinson, but um actually several people have died doing the bullet catch. <laughs> My god, that wasn't a real smart one to think of. And it's actually in their teeth. A lot of times it's in their teeth, but but not always. Um I just did an article about a uh, man named Jean Hugart who wrote a very famous book in magic circles called The Royal Road to Card Magic uh, and a few other things. And he did a version of the bullet catch where he would hold a piece of fabric with a red heart in front of him and actually catch the bullet and it would drop out of the fabric but the the fabric would get powder burns on it um and and heat burns and what made his presentation so unique was he did not have a members of his troop come and be kind of a mock firing squad which was very popular uh in the vaudeville days when when performing this he would invite he he Traveled in Australia. He was an Australian magician originally, and he would invite guys to like bring in their guns from the ranches, and <laughs> and he'd pick four or five guys, and they'd bring their own guns and their own ammunition, and they would mark them and uh, take shots at them. And oh it, at one point, somebody who was going to prove that what he had done is somehow switch out the ammunition instead of shooting Hugart stuck his gun straight up in the air and shot a uh shot the theater and ended up putting a big hole in the roof. So, <laughs> jeez. Wow, incredible. Now, bullet catches are, are one of those things by the way that they make great posters and and if and if you run across a bullet catch poster, it's going to be just markedly more expensive because it it's you know, you don't have to be a magician to kind of appreciate the 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 drama of what's going on right right oh one more thing books early books of magicians are any of them really collectible that you're aware of oh definitely if you're a magician <laughs> and if that means not, like tools of the trade basically basically because because most magic books are about magic so um by and large, they're really only of interest to magicians, and I mean, that's one of the things I collect. Um, and, and even though, man, so much of it, to be honest, is useless, there's nothing more useless than a magic trick that starts, you know, borrow a hat pin from a lady or, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, see if you can procure a pocket watch on a chain from a gentleman and, and his bowler, <laughs> and you're like, oh, great. Uh, but... But 
but I collect them. I know a lot of magicians do collect them. Um, there were, however, souvenir books put out by a lot of the traveling magicians. Uh, magicians were very much the rock stars of their day, and many of them traveled the world several times. Houdini did, um, you know, and so many others did, and and they would then write books about their adventures, you know, all over the world, many of which are um, just absolutely full of just blatant lies and, you know, almost pulp magazine adventures. The other thing that ends up being collectible is books by magicians that people don't always realize are magicians. Um, The Shadow, the famous radio character who was played originally by Orson Welles, uh, spun off into a pulp magazine for for a number of years, and almost every story in the Shadow magazines of the Shadow was um, they were all written under pen names, but almost every one was written by a man named Walter Gibson, who was a hugely prolific writer uh, and friend of Houdini and Joe Dunninger and many of the big magicians uh, of the day, and. Uh, so not only did he write all these pulp novels, but he actually ghost wrote books for Houdini and Dunninger and things like that. So his books end up being collectible by magicians, by pulp uh, collectors, and a lot of people collect the old pulp magazines. Yeah, they call and, it cross collecting. Yes. Yeah. And I'll admit I'm I'm one of those people because I, I'm a huge fan of the pulp magazines as well. Now, one last question here, Michael: If you were going to pick the most controversial and colorful magician of all time, who would that be and why? Wow. There are so many. Colorful, definitely, is is an easy one. Um, controversial. All right, we'll just go mm. with colorful then. Uh, okay. To, because, because a lot of magicians are controversial within magic, but not so much outside of magic. Because... Um, you know, and those controversies are very inside baseball. It's, you know, hey, you're sawing a woman in half pretty much exactly like this guy sawing a woman in half. So so that's where the controversy tends to come in. Um, but as far as colorful, uh, there, was a, there was a gentleman named the Great Lafayette. Oh, yeah, I've heard of him. Yeah. Di- died tragically in a theater fire. Um, in fact... The existing Scottish and English fire regulations in, in many ways owe themselves to the, the theater fire that, that killed Lafayette. And um, he was an interesting guy. He was a bit flamboyant that might have covered up a alternative lifestyle, that might have covered up the fact that he was actually chasing married women. There's some discussion about that. Um, Kind of but, convoluted, I guess, huh? Well, you know, it, it's and it's hard to say now because that's, you know, was was hushed tones back then. But he was known to travel with a dog named Beauty, who was supposedly given to him by Houdini, and and he did definitely know Houdini. But he just doted on this dog. He loved this dog. His dog passed away shortly before the theater fire that would kill Lafayette, and uh, they were in Scott. They were in Scotland, in Edinburgh, and he actually bribed, more or less, the local officials to allow Beauty to be buried in a cemetery. He could not stand the idea of 
his dog being cast aside like other pets. And there were no pet cemeteries uh, at the time, which is wow. so he he had her stuffed and she was going to be buried in a crystal casket. Before this could be completed, however, he died in this theater fire, which is a fascinating story in itself because he, he was originally he was in the middle of a, a trick where he disappeared and appeared somewhere else. And part of that had to do with using an assistant who was dressed just like him. So they originally found the assistant's body badly burned and assumed it was the Great Lafayette. And it wasn't until several days later that they found the Great Lafayette curled up in a box and, oh. and burned to death. Oh, my goodness. But they, they were able to identify him thanks to a, a, a ring that he wore. And uh, they ended up – this is a true story, and there are pictures. You can look this up on the internet. They ended up cremating him the rest of the way, putting him in an <laughs> urn, tucking him under Beauty's foot, and they were buried together in a crystal casket in, in a cemetery in Scotland. I don't think you can get any more colorful than that. <laughs> it's it's hard to top that one. Yeah. Well, Michael, thanks so much. It's been a it's been a great show uh, talking to you and very fascinating. Okay, great. And I'd, I'd like to say, if anybody's interested in uh, looking at some magic auction catalogs, there is a ha- auction house in Chicago called Potter and Potter Auctions, and they do a lot of ma- specific magic-only auctions, and you can download a bunch of their catalogs online, and they'll give you a, a great idea of you know h- how visually interesting some of this stuff is, but also an idea of what some of the various magic memorabilia is expected to fetch at auction as well. That's great. All right. Thanks a lot, Michael. Hey, no problem. Thank you for having me. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.